Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Sorry about the late start. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be able to come before you this morning to gather your people. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church and, Father, for your graciously making us part of it. We pray that in all we do today, Lord, that you will be pleased and glorified, Lord, and that you will uh, be pleased to instruct us, to encourage us, Father, to pour out your graces upon us in all their varied forms to meet our varied needs. Uh, Father, we just ask your blessing at this time and for the remainder of the day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As we begin today's class, um, I just want to take a couple of minutes to kind of help orient us in terms of where we are uh, in terms of our progress in the study of the class. I think it will help us, especially since um, we kind of got offset a few weeks back when Pastor Will was out sick. So we started the class um, with Pastor Desmond teaching two classes about the Sabbath first looking at the ground and the goal of Sabbath rest in its Old Covenant context, and then uh, on the New Covenant Sabbath or the Lord's Day. In the next two classes, I taught on a biblical theology of worship, focusing one class on the Old Testament roots and the next on the New Covenant realities of biblical worship. After that, the plan was to have Pastor Will teach two classes, classes five and six, from the perspective of historical theology, looking at the state of corporate worship of the church, um, really on the eve of the Reformation, and then how the Reformation of worship was approached and shaped by the Reformers according to biblical and patristic practices. And this would have transitioned us to talking about the elements of worship over the next 10 weeks. Um, But when Will was out, Pastor Desmond taught what was originally scheduled to be classes 7 and 8 on the element of reading the scriptures in corporate worship. So when Pastor Will came back, he then taught those two historical classes on the Reformers' perspective these past two weeks. So uh, Desmond's class on reading the scriptures would have followed what Will taught last week as we focus now on particular elements of worship, um, focusing two classes each on reading, <clears throat> praying, singing, preaching, and the sacraments. So I'm really picking up where Desmond left off a few weeks ago after reading corporate or reading uh, in corporate worship. And today I'm going to start the first of two classes on praying in corporate worship. Then the next two classes will be on singing in corporate worship. After that, two classes on preaching in corporate worship. And then finally, we'll talk about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper as part of the corporate worship of the church. So with that uh, background, um, we'll go ahead and get started on on today's class. Um, Now, depending on your exposure to various churches and denominations, uh, whether by 
personal experience uh, in churches that you were a part of or just some things that you may have seen or heard, you probably recognize that worship services in many evangelical churches contain very little really in the way of scriptural content. Um, This is evident in seeker-sensitive churches uh, where the goal is often to make the service as palatable as possible uh, for unbelievers. It's also evident in experience-oriented churches, uh, in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, um, in churches whose heritage is deeply rooted in 19th century American revivalism. Um, Now, this is not to suggest that these churches don't preach from the Bible or that they don't believe and value the Bible. But even in many conservative evangelical churches, apart from the sermon, which may be very good, there's still very little Bible content um, in whatever form of liturgy they may have. It's lacking in the form of reading, it's lacking in their prayers, it's lacking in their singing, and it's lacking often in minimizing of the role of the sacraments. Ironically, in some liberal mainline churches where belief in the Bible is minimal and its contents are often questioned, their liturgies actually contain more biblical content than many so-called evangelical churches. And uh, sadly, this is true even among some churches that would consider themselves in some manner reformed. Now, I'm not trying to look around and uh, critique what various people in various churches are doing. Um, Neither am I inclined to try to make our church appear superior by pointing out the shortcomings of others. I recognize where my primary responsibilities lie and I seek to promote growth and reform where I've been called to serve. And uh, that is the mindset of all our pastors. So understand um, this is intended as a general observation uh, as we consider our own motives, our own standards, our own histories, our own expectations, and our own practices in regard to worship. My point is to note that the relative paucity or absence of uh, scripture in services of worship is not consistent with historic reformed worship or with biblical priorities. One of our aims in this class is to establish continuity historically, theologically, and biblically within reformed worship, that our worship should be consistent with our theology and with our biblical and historical ecclesiastical roots. The Protestant Reformation um, is often understood, and rightly so, as a reformation in the area of biblical authority, isn't it? Uh, We think of sola scriptura over against the Roman magisterium. It's also understood properly to be a, a reform in the area of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And so we hold and we teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of this, and all things to the glory of God alone. These five solas, as they're called, uh, really help to define Reformation priorities uh, in worship. 
And because um, <clears throat> the Reformation was about these things and very much in line with this, the Reformation was largely a Reformation in worship. Uh, Calvin, in his treatise on the necessity of reforming the church, addresses worship first as that which was in need of reform. And he says that worship is the number one issue in the Christian religion. This is because it is the end for which we're created and redeemed. So in reforming the church, Calvin prioritized reforming her worship. Terry Johnson, a uh, Presbyterian minister who has uh, done some very good work in the area of reformed worship, helpfully points out the impact of the five solas that they've had on reformed worship. He talks about the impact of sola scriptura in regard to worship, that scripture alone is the supreme authority for all that we teach and practice. This has huge implications for worship. The regulative principle is grounded in sola scriptura. In the area of Christology, solus Christus had profound impact on reformed worship. The Roman mass as a sacrifice was rejected. The priest as an altar Christus was rejected. The intercession of saints was rejected. Sola fide impacted reformed worship because it was understood that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so reformed worship is saturated with scripture. Scripture plays a central role in worship as we hear from God and speak to him in terms that he's revealed himself. Sola gratia is crucial as well because it was understood that we bring nothing to merit God's blessings and that God's grace is mediated to us always and only through the Holy Spirit upon whom we are dependent for everything. Because of this reality, prayer had a central place in Reformed worship. <clears throat> when the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy to instruct him on how one should act in the household of God, he started his positive instruction addressing the issue of prayer. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He wanted him to get this first of all. <clears throat> when we consider the importance of prayer in corporate worship, we should remember what Jesus said about the temple when he cleansed it because it had been corrupted from its design and purpose when he drove out those who were corrupting it. He said, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. For all the nations. We see that in Mark 11:17. It's interesting. He doesn't say that it will be called the house of sacrifice. Though sacrifices were carried out there daily. Twice a day. 
morning and evening. He doesn't even say that it should be called a house of preaching. He says it should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Where did Jesus get this from? Well, he was drawing on the prophet Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 56, 7. And in fact, um, going back further to 1 Kings 8, 22 and following, at the dedication of the temple, and we'll spend some time looking at that passage later. Prayer is um, important for so many reasons, but one of which is it's the primary way of drawing near to God. Praying is one of the most intimate ways of meeting with God, where we bear our souls before Him and express our dependence upon Him and we offer our praise to Him. Um, it is, as I say, one of the primary ways of drawing near to God. <clears throat> Calvin said that the very heart of worship is prayer. Robert Godfrey points out that Calvin looked at prayer as one of the main tests of what our worship really amounts to in terms of glorifying God. And he notes that in writing on the reforming of worship, Calvin spends relatively little time on preaching and reading in comparison with the space that he devotes to prayer. Terry Johnson argues that a third to half of the time of corporate worship ought to be given to prayer and praise. If we really believe what our theology says that we believe, then we will pray. We will devote sufficient time to prayer, to express our dependence before God, to express our praise for who He is, our thanks for all that He has done and given to us. We will express in the form of confession our own brokenness and contriteness for our sin and will seek his pardon and forgiveness. We will express our need for him to respond favorably in answer to our petitions and to work in response to our intercession. But sadly, many churches today give very little time to corporate prayer and often they give even less thought. In contrast to this, it is said that Charles Spurgeon once said, when asked about the relative importance of preaching and prayer, well, if I had to choose between the sermon and prayer, I guess the sermon would have to go. Perhaps that's not what you expect from the Prince of Preachers. Um, but then again, maybe that's why his preaching was so powerful. <clears throat> So as we come to the subject of corporate prayer, of prayer in the gathered community of God's people, we will look at a few examples of the Old Testament and the New, and we'll consider some principles and aspects of public prayer. And then next week we'll look at how things developed historically in the history of the church, specifically focusing on prayer in Reformed churches. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, we don't see many examples of corporate prayer early on. Uh, in Genesis, for example, the narrative is largely centered around the patriarchs and their families. So it's not really until we get to the formation of the nation uh, that you start to see the development of corporate prayer. <clears throat> Nonetheless, 
uh, we do see um, in Genesis that the members of Noah's family are saved through the, fa- through the favor that God shows to one righteous man, Noah. We also see that God promises to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. The salvation provided on the ark for the few based on their relationship with the one and the promises made to Abraham first for a nation and then for the world point to the covenantal structures that typify how God relates to those whom he will save. God saves in the context of a covenant and through a mediator. Salvation is never merely individual, individual, but with and into a community, a people who are joined together by God. The role of mediatorship or one standing for others gives shape to the idea of corporate prayer. As we move into Exodus, we see in chapter 2, verse 23, that the people collectively groan and cry out for help under the burden of slavery and that God responds remembering the promise to Abraham and acting to deliver them through a mediator. We also see in chapter 4 verse 31 and in chapter 12 verse 27 that the people worship corporately first in response to learning that God had heard them and was going to act to deliver them. And then later when Moses gave them the instructions for the Passover by which God was about to bring about that deliverance. In Exodus 15, 1-18, we have a detailed account of corporate prayer in the form of song as Moses leads the people in a joyous praise to Yahweh for his gracious and mighty deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh's army. At the formation of the newly redeemed nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, we see the mediatorial role of Moses uh, as he carried out uh, that role through intercessory prayer for the people of Israel. You have one man speaking to God on behalf of the nation for their blessing, <clears throat> for, <clears throat> for their protection, for their forgiveness, for their repentance, uh, for God to fulfill his promises toward them as he had sworn to their fathers. So again, we see the importance of the mediatorial role of intercessory prayer for the people of God. But uh, this is prayer not so much in the people's presence as in the Lord's presence on behalf of the people. And again, while it's not properly speaking corporate prayer, we see more at Sinai that will be critical in the development of national Israel's prayer life. If you will, look uh, in your Bibles at Exodus 34. We'll be looking at uh, verses... Uh, 6 and 7. As God reveals himself to Moses here in this passage, uh, he declares to him 
his name um, and his attributes. <clears throat> and there we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. <clears throat> this account and this uh, revelation is picked up and it's invoked in the prayers of God's people throughout the Old Testament, um, starting with Moses himself. Uh, Moses appeals to it in Numbers 14, verses 17 to 19, reminding God of what he said while interceding for the rebellious Israelites. And there he says, <clears throat> And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, <clears throat> just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Uh, this is also found in uh, some form in a number of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. <clears throat> Nehemiah makes reference to it a number of times in his prayer in Nehemiah 9, uh, verses 17 and 31, which we won't look at right now. <clears throat> and even negatively, in Jonah 4.2, the prophet expressed his displeasure to God for showing mercy to the Ninevites. Um, so he said, This is why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want that mercy to be shown to his enemies. <clears throat> and so we see this extensive use of this biblical language previously revealed being utilized in calling upon God in prayer, praising him for his gracious character, grounding prayer in his covenant faithfulness, in the very words that he used to reveal himself. <clears throat> Now we'll probably come back and talk about this in principle a bit further next week. That is the use of scriptural language. Um, but one further thing here, of course, uh, at Sinai, they also received instructions for the tabernacle where God would meet with his people and dwell in their presence uh, as he had done at Sinai. And here then the mediatorial role of the priest for the people would become central to the corporate worship of Yahweh. 
We see the importance of the priest's prayers for the people specifically in Leviticus 16, verse 21. There on the Day of Atonement, after making atonement for the holy place, for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, we have the ritual involving the scapegoat, where the high priest confesses the sins of the people. <clears throat> and reading in uh, Leviticus 16, 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. <clears throat> so here is this corporate confession through the prayer of the peace of the priest <clears throat> for the people of God. In Leviticus uh, 23, God calls for all Israelite males to appear before him three times a year for holy assembly. And um, in Psalms 120 to 134, the Psalms of Ascent, uh, in these Psalms we have forms of prayer in song that were corporately sung as the people went up to Jerusalem for these various festivals. And then once these psalms were written down, uh, many of them were prayed and sung by the people on Sabbaths and on other occasions of worship before Yahweh. <clears throat> now we see other examples of corporate prayer, which I'll just uh, touch on briefly. Joshua intercedes for the people when Achan sins. We see that in Joshua 7, 6-9. In Judges, the people cry out to Yahweh when they find themselves oppressed by other nations. And uh, there's a list of verses there in your <clears throat> notes on that. <clears throat> and there we hear the refrain, the people of Israel cried out and the Lord raised up a deliverer. In the books of Samuel, we see Samuel intercede for the nation when they want a king in 1 Samuel 8. In chapter 12, the people urge Samuel to pray for them in verse 19, which he promises to do as he says that Yahweh will not forsake them for his great name's sake. Now the years of David's reign were a fertile period for corporate prayer as the sweet psalmist of Israel who received the blessing of the covenant from Yahweh gave so much of the Messiah's prayer book the collection of psalms to the nation and through the Messiah he gave it to the church David's song of thanks in 1st Chronicles 16 verses 8 to 36 is a, a great example of this. The occasion was when David brought the ark to Jerusalem and placed it in the tent and offered sacrifices there. And then in verse 4, it says, Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And he appointed that thanksgiving be sung, uh, which begins in uh, verse 8. 
saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. <clears throat> and then we have this long song of praise. And then at the end of this corporate prayer in song, we read in verse 36, Then all the people said, So here's another aspect of the, the corporate element here. All the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. One of the most informative passages of Scripture on public corporate prayer is the prayer given by Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Let's look at that uh, closely. At, uh, that's in 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 22. Kings 8, starting 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled, have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. Okay, so we hear expressions of praise, particularly for God's covenant faithfulness and fulfilling what he had promised to David regarding the temple. And there are prayers uh, based on his promise then to fulfill the continuation of David's throne to his descendants. <clears throat> he then ascribes greatness to God in his transcendent majesty that not even the highest heavens can contain him, uh, much less the temple. We see that in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. <clears throat> and yet even in his exalted majesty, he hears prayer. And he has regard for the pleas of his servants. Verse 28 says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Now, the central importance of prayer to the temple ministry and the nation's corporate religious life becomes the dominant note 
throughout the rest of the prayer. <clears throat> he continues, And listen to the prayer of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen <clears throat> in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people, your peop of, of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, Whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this place, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers and this uh, then is not only for national Israel but for foreigners as well for all nations <clears throat> likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house <clears throat> that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against the enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they shall pray to the Lord toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away and captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent 
and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So no fewer than ten times uh, we see prayers and pleas offered and a call to hear and to listen and to respond. Again, Solomon clearly understood this house to be a house of prayer and a house of prayer for all nations. Though God was not confined there, nor were prayers hindered um, if, if they were offered in exile precisely because God is not confined there. After Solomon stood and gave a blessing, after, after this, after this prayer, Solomon stood then and gave a blessing, uh, a benediction to the whole assembly. In verse 54 it says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where, we had, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. Um, Now I'm going to just leave it off there. The benediction continues for uh, several more verses. Um, But again, in this prayer, Solomon remembers the covenant promises of God and bases his prayer upon them. He remembers that God had promised that David's desire to build a temple would be fulfilled in Solomon and that he would make his name dwell there. So Solomon had built the temple in obedience to the word of God with the expectation that when it was built, God would honor the prayer that was offered in the temple. Uh, Hughes Oliphant Old, um, probably the greatest scholar of worship and liturgy in the 20th century, says, what is abundantly clear at this point is is that the theological foundation of prayer is the doctrine of the covenant. It is evident from the instances of prayer that Solomon lists, that much of it has to do with public sin, public confession, and the forgiveness of the whole people. 
What is also evident is the confident expectation of Solomon in the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. That even though his people sin and turn away and incur his judgment, if they repent and turn back to him, if they confess their sin and pray to him for forgiveness, he will hear, he will respond, he will restore. He will preserve his people and fulfill his covenant promises and his redemptive purposes. An example of um, this sort of penitential prayer uh, is Psalm 12. Uh, If you'll turn there for a moment, we'll look at that briefly. It says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So here in this psalm, in the first two verses, we hear the lamentation. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see the supplication for mercy. And then in the fifth verse is the prophetic oracle in which God promises justice to the afflicted, saying, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Which is then followed in the fourth place by words of confident and grateful trust in God. So this four-part liturgy or order, uh, this song of lamentation, or the song of lamentation or crying out to the Lord, followed by a prayer of confession and supplication for mercy, followed by a divine oracle for <clears throat> of forgiveness and assurance of redemption, and then followed by thanksgiving. This pattern, this liturgy, is found in a great number of prayers in the book of Psalms. Um, <clears throat> Now, we, we talked about uh, how the temple served public uh, concerns in terms of prayer, but also um, personal and private needs of anyone who sought the Lord um, were considered. Back again in, in 1 Kings 8 and verse 38, it says, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each 
according uh, to each whose heart you know. <clears throat> Individual Israelites would regularly come with a variety of personal troubles for which they wanted to pray. Um, family members who were ill, um, farmers praying for good crops, sinners praying for mercy, people suffering various hardships and afflictions, expressing gratitude for deliverance. Um, psalm 107 uh, is a psalm really that weaves together a variety of individual concerns and prayers into one single hymn of thanksgiving to God, who is the Savior of his people and whose steadfast love endures forever. Hughes Old says, all the personal concerns like little streams finally join into a great river of corporate prayer in Psalm 107. Uh, the relation between individual and corporate prayer also comes together in recognizing just how we seek the prayers of others when we're in need. Additionally, in the Psalms, the individual and the nation are often brought together because of their covenantal union. For example, prayers for the king and for his well-being were in fact also petitions and intercessions for the nation, whether explicitly or implicitly. The prayers of David, which are so seminal and profound, are prayed by the king who stands in a mediatorial relationship to the people. Again, Old notes that David prayed for Israel and Israel prayed for David. And because of this covenantal mediatorial relationship, he adds even more, Israel prayed in David. Now, when it comes to a new covenant perspective, because David was understood to be a type of Christ, the prayers of David, prayers for David, and the prayers for David's kingdom were applied as the prayers of Christ and his church. We see this in Acts 4, 23-31, where the church prays in the words of Psalm 2, in light of the opposition of the peoples to the Lord, to his Christ, and to his people, as they were then bearing the, bearing the rage of the nations against them because of their covenantal union with the Lord. Because Christ is our mediator, one mediator between God and man, Christians pray in the name of Christ. Christ prays for the church, and the church prays in Christ. So our own prayers are wrapped in the prayers of Christ who intercedes for us, and we appropriate the prayer of Christ. Again, Hughes Old says, the ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father intercedes for the church and presents our individual prayers at the throne of grace as part of his own prayers. Our prayer mingles with the sweet innocence of his prayer. <clears throat> Christ made the Psalms his own and told us that they spoke of him. And in the Psalms, we have the words that God has given us to speak to him. The Psalms, whether read or prayed or sung, 
are a rich source of praises, lamentations, petitions, meditations, intercessions, and supplications. They tie our personal prayers to the corporate prayers of the people of God in every generation, and they tie us to the prayers of Christ himself. Now, before we look a little more at prayer in the New Covenant, I I want us to briefly consider some developments that preceded the New Testament writings. In the uh, Second Temple period, in the centuries before Christ, there developed a prayer for use in the synagogues called the Amida. Uh, It's also known as the Prayer of the 18 Benedictions. And it became the central prayer in the synagogue liturgy. This prayer was was well formulated by the first century, and it's pretty certain that Jesus and the apostles would have been very familiar with it and followed this form of prayer in the synagogues. At that time, the Amida was not a fixed formula prayer, but it was a form of prayer. So it wasn't just strictly read, but um, the outline, the guide was, was used consistently. The exact text wasn't set. Um, the arrangement of themes in each of the 18 parts were clearly established. <clears throat> now, um, that prayer began with three benedictions of praise and thanksgiving. And then in the center of the prayer, there were six supplications or petitions of a more personal nature, which were then followed by six intercessions for the well-being of the nation of Israel. And then the final three benedictions concluded the prayer with praise and thanksgiving and introduced the Aaronic benediction of number six. In this prayer, each supplication and intercession is concluded with a benediction or a thanksgiving. Uh, An example of this is seen in the sixth benediction, uh, which is a supplication for mercy. It says this, Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have transgressed. For thou art good and forgiving. Blessed be thou, O Lord, who art gracious and dost abundantly forgive. Now, I don't know if they spoke in the King James language at that time, but... um, Now, uh, another example is the 11th benediction, which is an intercession for the Jewish civil authority, which says, Restore our judges as at first, and our counselors as at the beginning, and reign thou over us, O Lord, alone, in grace and mercy and righteousness and judgment. Blessed be thou, O Lord, the King who loves who loves righteousness and judgment. So the prayer asks for the establishment of a just civil authority, and at the same time praises God for His love of justice. So the the, the request is grounded upon uh, the nature of God. Um, now. Uh, Hughesold points out that it's possible that the Apostle Paul, uh, who would have been very familiar with this prayer, had something like this in mind when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 6, that they were to make their prayers and supplications to God 
with thanksgiving. We have this pattern of the prayer and supplication followed by a related thanksgiving. This uh, last benediction I just read uh, also reminds us of 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2 that we read earlier. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any way. So you'll hear uh, Paul encouraging prayer, calling for prayer, um, at least of similar content and intent um, than that one. Um, Praying for civil authorities for the good of the church and her mission, uh, as as he lays out there. Um, and so this uh, form of prayer was was common in that day, and it really did have a lot of impact um, on aspects of New Testament uh, corporate prayer. <clears throat> now. We're going to have to leave off here, and uh, I'll pick up at this point um, next week. So let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Our gracious Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you have opened the way for us to come before your presence, to offer you praise as you are due to present our prayers, our petitions before you, knowing that you care for us and desire our good and you work for our good. We pray, Lord, that we would be men and women who more deeply appreciate the great privilege we have to draw near to you, that in our personal lives, Father, prayer would be a priority. And Lord, in that, our, that in our corporate life, in our worship together, um, Lord, that we would be a people of prayer, that our hearts would be united before your throne, seeking your face, desiring to do your will. Lord, we pray that you would work in us to this end uh, in greater and greater ways. And now as we gather with the church for the purpose of worship, pray that you would fill each of your people with your spirit, uh, that together we would be a temple in which you live by your spirit, um, where you meet and fellowship and draw near to your people as we draw near to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.